to finally be here, and we, I just tell you, we really sense a, a spirit of partnership um, with you guys and with this house as we uh, move to Philadelphia to plant a church. So I just want to say a big thank you. You've encouraged me, inspired me so much, you know, just to be around this spirit, this place, and this house, you know, that has such a history, such a rich heritage as a church. Um, but I come from a country full of cathedrals. You know, I come from a country where churches have a rich heritage, but not a lot of future. And so to come somewhere where there's a rich history, but also a profound, significant, beautiful future is, is so inspiring. So I salute you and just uh, I come to applaud everything that's happening here at C3 Fort Worth. You're a miracle in motion. And so uh, thank you for letting me be a part. So let's put our hands together for Pastor Brandon Meredith, the whole team, this house. Um, it's just amazing. And so we are about to move to the city of brotherly love. We were meant to move like around this time. Our visas were meant to come in June, July time. So uh, we've had a slight delay just because I think we're trying to get into the US at the hardest time in American history. So we're looking like it's going to be more like October, November time. And so because we have like a small group of people starting to gather in the city, we've just made the commitment as a family that we're going to fly out once a month for a week, do team meetings and interest nights and just gather people. And so we had our first ever interest gathering last week or 10 days ago and we had 45 people show up for our first interest gathering. Yeah, I'm I'm fired up about that. That's like, it's just brilliant. We had, we've had like a little WhatsApp group with about 10, 12 people on for the last couple of months, which are our launch team. But this launch team have never met each other. And so it's a group of strangers and it's been the most thrilling experience to try and build a, a spirit of, I guess, camaraderie between a group of strangers. And so this launch team that have never met each other put on our, you know, our first interest night and kind of it was amazing when you're turning up and the team that are putting the night together are all meeting each other for the first time and then welcome strangers. It was the most bizarre, exhilarating experience of my life and somehow we pulled it off. The sound equipment didn't work, but who needs sound equipment when you've got the Holy Spirit and a dream in your heart? And uh, so it's just, um, it's been good fun. And so we are in the process of moving the family here, you know, uh, we've got a little boy called Austin, uh, who's seven, and a little girl called Indy, who's four. We named, her, named both our kids over our favorite movie characters, Austin Powers and Indiana Jones. Um, <laughs> I am joking. It's just in case, it's a slight clash of, you know, humor here. That's, that's sarcasm. That's what we do best in England. So, so, so uh, and if I mock you, I love you, okay? Just to, to so if there's any mockery, it's because I think you're awesome. I don't hate you. Um, and, so, and so we may have lied to our children to kind of ham up the, the move into America experience. We told Austin that uh, Philadelphia is where Elf, you know, Will Ferrell, that's where he lives. He's from Philly, not New York. So he's dead excited to be in the same city as Elf. And Indy, we may have told that we're 10 minutes fr drive from Disney World. So... All for the cause, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Austin is like the most compliant, emotionally robust, intelligent, sweet-spirited, kind, tender-hearted boy. And Indy is this defiant, rebellious, st stubborn. She is so much like her mum, it's untrue. So, 
So I can say that because Beth's not with me on this trip. It just feels like therapy just to say it. It's like having two weeks away from my, my little girl is just heavenly. You know, I, I miss her. I love her. But um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's good to have a bit of, bit of time away. Um, and so we, uh, we've literally, you know, we had, this, um, we had this scripture just as we were in the process. Our first flight over, um, I read the parable where it says, you know, the parable that the, the guy that finds the treasure in the field uh, and having discovered the treasure, it says that he returns home and sells everything that he has in joy to buy the field. And I just feel like that's been our journey over the last few months is that in Philly, we found treasure in a field. Um, and we've returned home. We've sold everything we have, our house, our hot tub, and we uh, enjoy. You know, it's been, you know, it's the, it's the easiest thing to sell everything you have when you know that you've found treasure in the field. And we just can't wait to get here. And, you know, the treasure is the people of Philadelphia who are just, just beautiful, uh, warm-hearted people. And we just know that, again, it's a city with a great history, but we just believe, uh, we're believing for a great future. And, you know, we have this phrase in the UK that when, when America sneezes, the world catches a cold. Uh, and so, you know, if in any way we can be a part of what's happening through C3 on the East Coast and plant life-giving, Christ-centered, Jesus, Jesus-worshiping churches, then we not only may influence people's lives on the East Coast, but I just believe we could influence culture around the Western world in really profound ways. And even if we could stir up and, you know, you think about Europe is in many ways a very post-Christian secular society. It's almost like 50 years ahead of the U.S. in terms of its secularism. If in any way we could just begin to bring the U.S. back into a Christ-centered nation, uh, we, the effect that this nation could have around the world through planting churches is astronomical. So you guys are amazing. I just, I just am so encouraged from being with you just over this last couple of weeks and can't wait to Come and be a part of what's happening in the United States of America. If you love your country and you love this church, let's just give Jesus another big round of applause. So good. I, I love this clock at the front. The clock at the back says I've got 24 minutes. The one at the front says I've got 45. So, so, so. I won't keep you that long, but uh, it's so cool. So here's what we're going to do this morning. In the next, we'll go 24 minutes. In the next few moments, I want to unapologetically change the way that you think about absolutely everything. Are you with me? So here's what we're going to do. I want to read a parable in the New Testament. I want to read the parable of the talents in uh, Matthew chapter uh, 24, I believe it is, or 25. It's going to come up on the screens. Uh, the parable of the talents says this. It says, it says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. Uh, for he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also the one who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and began to settle, settle accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made five talents more. And his master says to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. 
Love those words. And he, he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me uh, two talents. Here I have made two talents more. And his master says to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy. Or another version says, Enter into the happiness of your master. He also had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here have what is yours. But his master answered him and says, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed. Now notice that that sentence finishes with a question mark because I actually want to hang this whole sermon on a question mark. He says, you wicked and slothful servant, you know that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed, question mark. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. Uh, so take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents for, uh, for to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast this worthless servant into outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. How about that for good news on a Sunday morning? <laughs> right there. So here's what I want to do. I haven't got a sermon title for you this morning. Instead, I want to, I want to pose a question. And I think how you answer this question um, in the depths of your soul will have the most profound implications on every area of your life. So here's the question. Is life a gift or is life a test? Is life a gift or is life a test? And how you answer that question when you put your head on your pillow at night in the depths of your soul will ultimately have profound implications on how you relate to others, how you relate to the life that is unfolding in front of you, how you relate to yourself, and ultimately how you relate to God. Is life a gift or is life a test? Are you with me? So there are 46 parables in the New Testament. Jesus is a storyteller through the Gospels. He tells 46 parables. This is number 45. So we are at the end of the Gospels and Jesus is like coming to his last few remarks, essentially. So how many of you know that when you only have a few more opportunities to share something, you kind of want to draw attention to the most important thing you're trying to say? You normally stress the things of highest importance when you only have a few last words. And up to this point, Jesus has been doing like all of the normal Messiah stuff, you know, like he's been amassing a following and a crowd. He's been working miracles. He's been opening blind eyes, opening deaf ears. He's been pulling people out of graves. He has been walking up water. He has thrown the largest church picnic of all time, the feeding of the 5,000. It's like the biggest church barbecue ever. There's like chicken and there's, there's biscuits and there's, there's all, all sorts of good Texan food going on the feed of the 5,000. And so he has amassed a crowd. And up till this point, most of the people that are following Jesus are pretty sure that they know how this thing is going to roll. They think that they are part of some sort of revolution against the empire. They think that they are about to overthrow the Roman 
government. They think that they are, in many ways, even in a violent way, are about to see the Hebrew people reinstituted as the people of authority, which is why when the, the centurions come and arrest Peter, uh, Jesus, that Peter draws his sword because Peter up to this point literally thinks that this is a violent revolution, that something profound is going to happen, that Jesus is going to be instituted as the, the emperor, the king. He's going to be the leader of the nation of the Hebrew people. And suddenly in the last few parables, uh, Jesus begins to tilt the whole thing. It's like you thought it was heading this way, but actually it's heading this way. He begins to address his disciples and says, and makes it clear that you think this is going to end with my victory when instead this is actually going to end with my death. You think this is going to end with our conquest, but actually this is going to end with my defeat, so as it would appear. You think that this is going to end with my presence, but actually this is going to end with my absence. Because notice in the parable that the master is away for the majority of the story. The master is absent from this story. And I don't know if you've probably heard the parable preached. If you spend any length of time in church, you've probably heard this parable preached many times. And the moral of the story, if you've heard it communicated many times before, normally goes something like this. Like the essence of this that we've heard many times is that we've been given a gift and you better do something good with the gift that you've been given. Otherwise, you're going to get it. Do you know what I mean? Like, you've been given something. You better do something good with what you've been given. If you do something good with what you've been given, you can go where there's only ch where chubby babies and fluffy clouds are. Or if you don't do something good with the gift that you've been given, you're going to go somewhere with a slightly warmer climate. Right? And I'm not, not talking about Texas. Yeah, I'm talking about the place where only cats and cowboy fans belong. Oh. <laughs> I've never watched an NFL match in my life, but go birds. <laughs> From Philly, I have to be an Eagles fan. But that's how we've heard this, that's how we've heard this story. It's like we've been given a gift, and if we do something good with what we've been given, we can, how many of you know cats don't go to heaven? Come on. <laughs> and we, so if we do something good with what we've been given, we can go where there's chubby babies and fluffy clouds. But if we don't, there are serious consequences, okay? But is that the best that Jesus can do at the end of his ministry? Is the best that he can do is leave the disciples with a do more, try harder sermon? Like... And we could preach that this morning and we could probably, we could preach the essence of that kind of teaching and we could finish with great enthusiasm that we're going to leave this place and do more and try harder. But I promise you, if I preached a message like that, we would leave on a high, but you would be more depressed on Tuesday than ever as the fumes of motivational speaking like that begin to run out. Is the best that Jesus came to offer the planet a do more, try harder message, or is something way more subversive going on in this parable? Are we actually meant to peel back and see something very different going on in the parable of the talents? Because notice that the parable of the talents does not begin with any kind of ultimatum, any kind of instruction, or any kind of plan. There was, it just literally starts with sheer gift. It's the story of a master that likes to gather servants and give his stuff away. Now, what you have to understand is that this 
the amount of these talents in today's society and economy probably amounts to a multi-million dollar budget that he gives to his servants. So we're not talking like, like about pocket change. This is not just some loose dollars in his pocket that he gives to these, to these servants. He essentially gives these three men a multi-million dollar budget, his estate to these three men. And notice that he gives them to his servants. So this master has bypassed his household, bypassed his son, his children, his daughter. He has bypassed his legacy, those that deserve his inheritance, and included servants in what belongs to his son. Which, by the way, is the gospel right there at the outset, that God actually includes servants, you and I, in the inheritance of the son. That's, that's why we're here and we celebrate, is that we were once far off, we were once lost, we were servants, but God draws us near in his generosity and includes us in what actually belongs to the Son. How many of you know that's good news right off the bat at the beginning? So he gives these three servants his stuff and doesn't tell them what to do. He gives one servant five talents, the other two, the other one, and then just vanishes. Just leaves these three dudes with all of his stuff, this sheer unmerited gift. And apparently the only implication of this parable that he somehow expects these three men to receive what he has given them. He doesn't give them a plan. He doesn't give them talents for dummies. He doesn't give them a manual. He doesn't give them any instruction. He just gives them his stuff then disappears. He's absent without leave and is absent for the majority of the story. Now, I find this kind of parable incredibly encouraging because I have spent my life trying to discover the plan. Like, are you with me? Like, I have spent my life trying to discover the master plan. You know, like, every time the prophet comes to town... I would wear the brightest colored clothes. I'd wear something bright pink like John this morning, who clearly wants a prophecy. Like, like you'd wear something that would make you visible from the platform. Whenever the prophet's here, like give me a word, a big neon sign, pick me. You know, I've spent my life trying to, like, God, Lord, what is thine will for my life? Like, like, speak to me, Lord. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what happens in, in, our, in our consciousness is often when we think about the future that God has for us, we think that life is like a tightrope. Like, we, we end up suspended upon, uh, you know, on a tightrope, and we're trying to make the right decision. And so what happens is we feel completely immobilized. It's like, what should I have for breakfast? What socks should I put on? Like, like what, where should I live? What job should I go for? And what happens is we can become completely uh, unstable and incapable of ever making decisions in life because we think if we make the wrong decision, we're somehow going to miss God's plan for our life. We're going to slip and miss out on the destiny and the the future that God has for us. And so somehow what's happened in Christianity is we fill churches with people that are incapable of making decisions because we don't want to miss the plan. But do you know, nowhere in the Bible does it make it clear that life is like a tightrope. Instead, it gives you scriptures like his boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places, which means that life is a lot less like a tightrope and more like a field to explore. 
that you can actually go for a wander, that God actually empowers you to make decisions. He respects your freedom and actually empowers you to take a walk in the field, the inheritance within the boundary lines that God has given us, which is incredibly empowering. And the good news is, is that the New Testament says that even when, if we do put our foot in the wrong place, that all things work together for good. That somehow underneath our life, the tectonic plates move so that we still end up stumbling into the stuff that God has for us. And so Jesus, as he's about to disappear, he's about to leave, he's about to die on a cross, be buried, resurrect, be resurrected and ascend to heaven. He wants to empower his disciples and his followers with this story that he gives him, gives these three masters, uh, these three servants his stuff, and then empowers them to participate in decision making. And there's no plan. He just allows them to receive what he has given them. So, and what's most amazing, and there's a hint here to, to, the, to the enormity of the biblical story, is that it says that he gives these three men his property. So it's not just that a story of a man that just gives some, some money he gives them his property. So it's the story of a master that entrusts three men with his property and then is absent from the story and allows them to participate in his property. So there's actually a throwback here. There's an echo from the Eden story right through this parable. There's an echo of Genesis 1 and 2 where where God, the the relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit begins to create a planet, a property. I I don't know if you realize, but in the creation story, God wasn't just creating us a home. He was creating a home for himself. It's the story. The creation story is not just the story of a creator and the created. It's the story of the co-creators, you and I, where he, in relationship, participates with us to create a world. Like the Eden, I don't know if you realize this, but the Garden of Eden, though it was finished, it wasn't, sorry, though, though it was perfect, it actually wasn't yet finished. He, he gathers Adam and Eve and he says, be fruitful, multiply. Sounds a lot like the, the talent story. It'd be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. You see, Eden was perfect, but it wasn't finished. And it was the responsibility of Adam and Eve to almost extend the boundaries of the garden, to extend this thing so that more people could inhabit this space in relationship with them and with God. So there's, like a, there's a throwback here in the, in the parable to the whole point of it all, that God actually gives us his property and expects us to participate in relationship to extend the space that God dwells here on earth. Now, I don't know if you've spent any length of time in church, but um, most of the time when you would... Uh, because I read this parable and I think if we're talking about property and we're talking about here and now, I, I have to ask myself this question. It asks of me a big question like, what, what does God really want? Like, what's God's vision? Is, what's this whole existence thing about? Is God's vision there and then where there's fluffy babies, uh, chubby babies and fluffy clouds? Fluffy babies would be kind of cool. Is God's vision there and then, or is God's vision here and now? 
Like, is the gospel, the New Testament, is it meant to make me more spiritual? Or actually, is it meant to make me more human? Like, like, does God want to get me into heaven? Or actually, does God firstly want to get me into earth? Do you know what I mean? Like, is, is, is the church, the thing that we're a part of this morning, is this all about God's people, God's people rescued from the world? Or in fact, is this about God's people rescued for the world? Like, is, is the good news that we have to offer about our evacuation from this place or about our full emergence into it as fully abundant, living, generous, uh, fullness of life giving humans to this earth? You see, what you've got to understand, uh, the problem is I think often we started the story in the wrong place. Like, often we started the story the, the Christian story in Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, sin enters the world, we have a problem, we need a savior, and we start in Genesis 3 with a problem. Now, sin and the problem of sin and the, the pervasiveness of sin through society and through the world is of huge destruction, not just to our own soul, but the communities that we live in, and we can never downplay what, what sin represents. But how many of you know you don't start the story in chapter 3? Like, have you ever started a story in chapter three? You start a story in chapter one. Because in the first couple of chapters, that's where the context is. Like, as you know, when you walk into a movie late and you've missed the first 10 minutes, and nothing makes sense because you've missed context. And many of us and many churches start the story in chapter 3. We start with Adam and Eve eating the fruit. But when you start with them eating the fruit, you start with a problem. But creation didn't start with a problem. It started with a God that was very happy and just announces over this earth, this is good. He creates giraffes and says, this is good. He creates, he creates oceans and flings galaxies and stars into space and says, this is good. He creates, he creates fish in oceans and says, this is good. He creates John and says... Not my best work, but he'll do. <laughs> like I say, if I mock you, I love you. The announcement through Genesis 1 and 2 is that right here on earth is where the magic happens. Like heaven and earth were one. Humanity and the divine were one. Soil and spirit were one. The, the plant, planet earth creation was God's original intent, original plan, everything that he wanted, and he was happy with it. So the story starts in a garden. And I don't know if you realize it, but if we were to skip from the first two chapters of the Bible, one and two, and go to the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, do you know where the story finishes? In a garden. It's New Jerusalem coming from heaven to earth, which is why Jesus tells us to to pray the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The whole movement is from heaven to earth. So the story starts in a garden and ends in a garden. Do you know if you were, so apparently God gets what he wants, just as a side note. Despite sin and corruption and brokenness, he still gets what he wants, a garden, a home here on earth. Do you know if you were to take sin out of the Bible, like the presence of sin out of the Bible, you'd have four chapters. You'd have Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation chapter 21 and 22. You'd have a pamphlet. <laughs> like, how many of you know, you know, for those of us that try and read the Bible in a year and fail every year, how many of you know it would be so much easier if the Bible was a pamphlet? 
You know, just four chapters. We'd be able to do it every day, let alone every year. Just get up every morning, read the Bible, all four chapters. It would be so much easier. So the story starts in a garden, ends in a garden. And you know, the best thing of all is right in the middle is the story of a man called Jesus who climbs out of a tomb with the announcement that there is a new world breaking out right here, right now, amidst this old one. And the best news of all is that everybody's invited. You see, the gospel is the announcement that this, this world right here, right now, is not beyond repair. Come on, is anyone with me this morning? That Texas, that Fort Worth, the gospel is the announcement that humanity is not beyond repair. And this is why when Mary, I love this, when she rushes to the tomb to find the dead body of Jesus, she runs past a gardener. She mistakes Jesus for a gardener. But I don't think, that's a hint there, I don't think that's a mistake at all. I think she actually sees Jesus in his true vocation. He is a gardener with a good heart and a green thumb, with green fingers that is fertilizing and growing this planet amidst an old one that is dying away. And so the the gospel announcement is that here on earth is where the magic happens. Is anyone with me? So it starts with the garden, it ends with the garden. And this is why this parable in Matthew 25 is so profound, because it's the story of a master that trusts servants with his property, leaves the scene, and comes back to see what, he's, what they've done with his property. Now, I love how the master returns. It's like... It's a guy that can't wait to include people in his happiness. So the story starts with irresponsible generosity. And then it ends with a man that returns and sees these first two men that have participated in what he's given them. And it's like he can't get his words out quick enough, like enter into my joy. Enter into my happiness. Come and participate in my happiness. It's like this this inclusionary, which is God, by the way. He is the great includer and we are the great included. He is a God that can't wait to gather his arms around humanity and include us in his joy. I don't know if you realize, but joy is the engine of the universe. It's what makes the whole thing spin on its axis. Like if we were to talk about theologically what God is, God is Trinity, his Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So God is by definition relationship and it's infinite. Out- God is the infinite outpouring of love between three people. It's the generous, other orientated love that flows between three people in this selfless enjoyment and happiness of one another. And the happiness and the joy and the love that the Trinity experiences between one Godhead is so good that they almost say to one another, this is so good, we can't keep this to ourselves. So the the creation story is the Trinity, the dance, the circle opening up to create people, you and I, so that you and I might be included in the life, the eternal life that the Trinity experiences between itself. 
That, my friends, is salvation. Salvation is not just what we've escaped. Salvation is what God has included us in, which is eternal, flowing, other-orientated, selfless happiness that pours forth in joy between three people, and we get to be a part. I don't know about you, but I feel like we need to upgrade our salvation story and upgrade kind of what we're preaching to the cities around the world because it's a lot better than just escaping something. It's about being included in the joy and the happiness of God in Jesus' name. So maybe as we close, maybe the, key, the guitarist can come up and jingle jangle us to the end. Because these first two men are included in joy. Included in happiness. But there is a third man who turns up on the scene and says to his master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you've not sown and gathering where you've scattered no seed. And God says, you, sorry, the master says, you knew me to be a hard man? Like reaping where I've not sown and gathering where I've scattered no seed? Question mark. Like, Really? You need me to be a hard man. The guy that started this whole thing with irresponsible, abundant generosity. That included you. Who, who don't have any right to the inheritance of this estate, but I drew you near. I gave you my stuff with no instruction or plan. And just somehow, I've just allowed you to participate in my stuff. And I've come back in joy and happiness and almost can't wait to include people in my happiness and you knew me to be a hard man? Like I read this parable and I'm like, how does this third dude get this so wrong? Like how has he misread this story that is unfolding in front of him? You see, the truth of Matthew chapter 25 is that this third man had reduced his master down to the size of his own fears. He had reduced the image of his master down to a mere reflection of himself. The reason he saw his master as a hard man was because he was a hard man. You see, in this, this parable at the end of the Gospels is a desperate plea to you and I for us to abandon our cynical views of who God is and the life that is unfolding in front of us. This gospel is a desperate plea from Jesus to abandon our small thinking of who God is and see Him as an abundant, irresponsible, irresponsible in His generosity towards us that includes servants in His estate and comes back desperately wanting to include people in His happiness. And the sad truth of Matthew 25 is that there will always be people that, that, that shrink and downsize the image of what God is to a mere reflection of themselves. But I have a feeling here at C3 Fort Worth, I'm surrounded by people that don't want to reduce the image of God down to some hard taskmaster, but realize we have been swept up with the benevolence of a God that just loves to give his stuff away and asks us to participate in what makes him most happy. So is life a gift or is life a test? Apparently, Matthew 25 says, you decide. Like God so respects our freedom that He will allow us to participate in the story we tell ourselves. 
That's the, that's the message of 25, Matthew 25. Is life a gift or is life a test? You decide. You can live like life is a gift or you can live like life is a test. And God will so respect your freedom that He will allow you to live in the paradigm you've created. But there's also a hint to desperately escape and free yourself from the tyranny that life is a test and actually live in the abundance, which is why the message through the Gospels is enter into eternal life. And eternal life doesn't start when you die. Eternal life when you start to include yourself in the life that God is given right here, right now, here on this earth, in this life. So is life a gift or is life a test? You decide but abandon your cynical ways in Jesus' name. So with 30 seconds left, I wanna give you three points. 10 seconds each, you ready? If you wanna live like life is a gift, number one, just live. Like just get on with life. Like just, in, just live your life, enjoy your life. Like some of you, practically, you've got candles in your home that you got for Christmas 2009. And you're waiting for the perfect night in when your husband hasn't annoyed you and the, the, the kids went to bed on time and haven't woken up and the weather's perfect, it's not too hot or humid, the cushions are perfectly feng shuied and the, you know, everything looks right and the perfect thing on Netflix before you light the candle. You're waiting for like the perfect night in. But can I tell you the most sacred thing you have in your life is right now. So go home tonight and burn the candle. Like, what are you waiting for? There is nothing more sacred than the moment you have right now. Oh, hang on, that's gone. Right now. Like, sacred is now. Now. So go home tonight and burn the candle. What are you waiting for? Some of you have got like wedding plates. You got married 93 years ago and you still have your wedding china in the loft. Go home today, get some of that great southern fried chicken, get out your wedding plates that you've never used for 93 years and just put on that kind of, that southern fried greasy chicken, slop it around and have the time of your life while your candle is burning. Just live. Number two, get give. Give, just Generosity makes the world go round. Just give, just, gen, just give stuff. Get swept up in the generosity of who God is. Just let, let, your, let generosity flow your, through your life. Give. And number three, just laugh. I've made a decision. I want to be the easiest person in Philadelphia to make laugh. I want to enjoy life. I want to enjoy church planting. I want to laugh my way through church planting. You know, like, I, I, just, I just decided, even if the joke sucks, I'm going to laugh. Like, even if your sense of humor is terrible, I'm still going to laugh. Because I want, I want to enjoy this moment. Laugh. Some of you need to go home after church today, wake your children up after the nap and tickle them until they vomit. I don't care if they're 29 years of age. Just like, like, like just laugh. Live, give, laugh. Is life a gift or is life a test? You decide. But I have a feeling that C3 Fort Worth is a life giving church that wants to give life to the city of Fort Worth and the state of Texas that wants, do you know what will attract people to this house? Is not just the sound of worship, it's the sound of laughter and the sound of life because what people crave is life. They want life and I have a feeling they'll find it here in C3 Fort Worth in Jesus' name. Come on, let's jump to our feet really quickly. I wanna pray for you. Father, I pray right now that life would break out over C3 Fort Worth in Jesus' name. Come on, let's raise our hands right now. Father, I pray that laughter would break out in people's homes. I pray enthusiasm would break out. I pray where there's been a sense of joylessness, let joy come now in Jesus' name. I pray that marriages would be restored with laughter. 
I pray that this house would be a house that is life-giving for the city of Fort Worth. And I pray that you would just pour abundance into people's spirits. I pray that we would throw off the lie that life is a test. And I pray that we would live in the abundance of the life that you have given us. In Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said.